Hey future doctors, thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm a student at Drexel University College of Medicine, and I will be your host today. If you're not excited to learn about heart failure, then you need to rethink your attitude in life. I'm kidding, but I'm also not kidding, because heart failure is one of those topics that shows up so commonly on the exam, you're guaranteed to have several questions about it. And it's a little bit reassuring because there's only so many ways that they can ask you about heart failure. So in my mind, if you have a solid understanding of the pathophysiology, and then you practice answering as many questions as possible, you set yourself up for success on the exam for this topic and really for any other topic as well. So in this episode, I'm going to spend a lot of time reviewing important details about heart failure and trying to help you guys solidify that pathophysiology. As always, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions as we go through this episode, so get ready to sit back, relax, and try and remember as much as you can. And most importantly, if you're not excited, get excited about heart failure because we're about to break it down. You know what? Let's start by breaking down heart failure into the two types of heart failure. What are they? Systolic and diastolic. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, What happens in systolic heart failure? The heart doesn't do what it normally does in systole, which is contract. So patients with systolic heart failure have decreased contractility. What happens to the heart in diastolic failure? Well, it doesn't do what it normally does in diastole, which is fill. So in diastolic heart failure, the heart actually has decreased compliance, and it's not able to hold as much blood as it normally would. So how do we tell these two types apart? What measurement do we use? So that would be the ejection fraction, okay? The ejection fraction tells us what percent of the blood that comes into the heart is actually pumped out to the body. Now, what's normal ejection fraction? It's 55 to 70%. And if that's not a number that you are able to, you know, pull out of your memory, no worries. It's easy to remember. I'm a cup half full kind of thinker. And so think of it as if the heart is pumping out more than half of the blood that enters it, so at least 55%, it's in a pretty good place. So what happens to ejection fraction in systolic heart failure? It's decreased, right? The heart isn't able to pump as much because it has decreased contractility, remember? And so ejection fraction is going to be reduced. You might read some articles that say in systolic heart failure, EF is usually less than 45%. Um, Just think of it as if you're pumping out less than half of what's coming into the heart, then you're really in systolic heart failure. Now, what happens to ejection fraction in diastolic heart failure? It actually can stay the same. So you might hear someone called diastolic heart failure, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And you might hear someone call systolic heart failure, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And that's really how you can tell them apart. Now next year, or in a couple months, when you're on the wards and you see a patient with heart failure, whenever you present them to your team, it's going to be important to give them that ejection fraction. 
because the ejection fraction can first of all tell us if it's systolic or diastolic heart failure. And if it's systolic heart failure, we get an idea of how bad it is, right? Obviously, if someone has 10% EF, it's a lot more concerning than if they have 40% EF. So what test result are you going to look at to look up their ejection fraction? I guess what I'm asking is how do we measure ejection fraction? We measure it using an echocardiogram, okay? Um, that's kind of like an ultrasound of the heart, and they can use that to determine how much blood the heart is pumping out. Are there other ways to tell apart systolic and diastolic heart failure? Of course there are. There's different physical findings, there's different causative factors, so certain risk factors, and so we're going to get into those details right now. Let's start with talking about systolic heart failure. What usually causes this? Dilated cardiomyopathy, okay? Dilated cardiomyopathy is actually the most common cardiomyopathy. And what happens to the muscle of the heart in dilated cardiomyopathy? Well, it somehow stretches so that the heart looks dilated, right? I kind of think of this as decreased overlap between the actin and myosin filaments that happens kind of as the heart stretches. And so less overlap between these filaments means they're not as effective at contracting. And so that's why it results in systolic heart failure. This type of heart failure is called eccentric cardiomyopathy because as the sarcomeres are added on, they're added on in series, so one after another, and that contributes to the dilation of the heart muscle. So what are the causes of dilated cardiomyopathy? Of course, they can be idiopathic and it can be familial, so there's a genetic predisposition. But there's a lot of commonly tested ways of getting dilated cardiomyopathy, so I'm going to go into those now. I kind of divide these into three categories, which are bugs, drugs, and random things. So what are the bugs that cause dilated cardiomyopathy? The first one that comes to mind is viral myocarditis. Classically, what virus causes cardiomyopathy? Coxsackie B, right? Think of the B as beating, as in a beating heart. Uh, so Coxsackie B uh, usually is responsible for viral myocarditis. And then what does its co counterpart, Coxsackie A, what does that cause? The hand, foot, and mouth disease. It's that rash that shows up in little kids. So Coxsackie B is classically tested as causing cardiomyopathy. In reality, you should know that a lot of different viruses can do it. And oftentimes when a patient is hospitalized, you're not going to figure out which virus exactly caused it but there's lots of viruses that can do it. Coxsackie B is the one you should know for the test. What other bug do we think of with dilated cardiomyopathy? This is a weird one. Do you remember Trypanosoma cruzi, the one that causes Chagas disease? What else happens in Chagas disease besides dilated cardiomyopathy? Dilated esophagus and dilated colon, right? So... Chagas disease, I just think of it, dilates everything. You get mega esophagus, mega colon, and then you get dilated cardiomyopathy. Do you remember how Chagas disease is transmitted? I'm only asking because it's so weird. This is the one where the kissing bugs bite you, and then they also uh, defecate on you, and then people often rub the feces into the eye. 
And remember that causes something called Romagna sign where they get swelling of the eyelid. I'm sorry, that was a tangent, but Chagas disease is weird. It causes dilated cardiomyopathy. So those were the bugs. What about the drugs? So chronic alcohol abuse is a big cause of dilated cardiomyopathy just in itself. And then there's also a vitamin deficiency that's associated with alcohol use. Do you remember that one? So B1 deficiency or thiamine deficiency, that can cause a disease called beriberi. Do you remember the difference between dry beriberi and wet beriberi? Dry beriberi is mainly, mainly causes neuropathy. Wet beriberi has dilated cardiomyopathy with it as well. It's called wet because heart failure leads to edema everywhere. And so that's how I remember that wet beriberi is the one that's associated with cardiomyopathy. So alcohol use on its own can cause this, but alcohol use is associated with thiamine deficiency, which also can cause um, dilated cardiomyopathy. What other drug do we see causing dilated cardiomyopathy? I'm thinking a drug that's used recreationally. Cocaine, often. And cocaine is the drug that kind of vasoconstricts everything. Um, so associate that with cardiomyopathy as well. And then there are a few chemotherapy drugs that can cause cardiomyopathy. Which ones are they? So doxorubicin, uh, it's also called adriamycin. That's used in treatment of leukemias and lymphomas. That can cause it. Anyone remember how to treat cardiotoxicity from doxorubicin? I would be so impressed. It's called dexrazoxane. It's not given to all patients who receive doxorubicin. It's given after they receive certain threshold dose. Um, but dexrazoxane can be used to prevent cardiotoxicity from doxorubicin. They sound very similar. And then there's another drug. It's used to treat breast cancer. Trastuzumab. Trastuzumab can cause cardiotoxicity. Uh, that's the drug that's used to treat HER2-new positive breast cancer. It's an antibody against that age, against HER2-new. And so anytime you're starting a patient on trastuzumab or doxorubicin, what testing should you get done? You should get an echocardiogram to assess their baseline function, okay? Uh, and then that can tell you, that can help you monitor the patient as they're getting treated to see if the heart function declines. So we talked about the bugs, we talked about the drugs. What are the random things that can cause dilated cardiomyopathy? So there are some deficiencies. We mentioned B1 deficiency already. And then another deficiency, which is super random, is selenium deficiency. That can cause dilated cardiomyopathy. Another random thing is pregnancy. So there's something called peripartum cardiomyopathy, which women get either anywhere from one month before the delivery up to five months after they deliver. Um, and it's thought to be triggered by some combination of the maternal hormones. So pericardum, peripartum cardiomyopathy can be dilated cardiomyopathy. And then there's some other diseases. So sarcoidosis, hemochromatosis, and thyrotoxicosis. Uh, they can cause dilated cardiomyopathy. Now, what if a 60-year-old woman who's away for a weekend or something receives a call that her husband passed away tragically in an accident? What might she get? 
I'm thinking of Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. I just like to say this because it's fun. Um, but Takotsubo cardiomyopathy is also called broken heart syndrome. Um, there's different theories about how it comes about in times of great stress. There can be a lot of catecholamine secretion. Other theories that have been proposed are some type of vasospasm. So patients can actually go into heart failure after they hear really bad news or after they're very shocked for whatever reason. So another condition, and this is the last one, I promise, that can lead to dilated cardiomyopathy in the long run. I'm thinking of high output heart failure. Um, high output heart failure is basically exactly what it sounds like. For whatever reason, the heart has to pump out a lot of blood. And then because it's working so hard, it just kind of fails. And then it stops effectively pumping out as much blood. So what are some things that could cause this? What are some conditions that would cause the heart to have to work so hard? Acutely, it can happen in septic shock when you're kind of systemically vasodilated and the heart feels like it has to get blood everywhere. It can happen in severe anemia that's chronic. So um, in anemia, you know, there's not as much hemoglobin, and so the blood isn't as effective as delivering, at delivering oxygen to the tissues. And so again, the heart is going to pump hard to compensate for that. Arterial venous fistulas can cause high output card, cardiac failure. Um, Paget's disease, because there's increased vascularization of the bone. And hyperthyroidism can lead to this too, because that increases the demand of the body by increasing the metabolism systemically. And sometimes obesity can also lead to high output heart failure. So for high output, just think of anything that causes the heart to have to pump out more blood um, for extended periods of time, like anemia, arteriovenous fistulas, Paget's disease, okay? Now, what is the major physical finding in systolic heart failure? What do you expect to hear on exam? The S3 sound, right? It's called the ventricular gallop. Why don't we get a ventricular gallop? It's caused by a large amount of blood entering a very compliant dilated ventricle. So S3, they classically compare it to Kentucky, 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 right? Um, Kentucky is the, the mnemonic for remembering the S3 sound. Uh, it kind of sounds like ba-dum-bum, ba-dum-bum, ba-dum-bum. And I don't know if it helps you guys to think of it this way, but S3 happens right at the beginning of diastole. So if you can identify S1 and S2, then S3 is going to be very close to S2. Now, is S3 always pathologic? No, S3 is not. Actually, it can be normal in, in who? In children and in athletes as well. So S3 isn't always pathologic, but if it is, it's associated with dilated cardiomyopathy. What's another heart sound that you might hear in someone who has dilation of their heart? Mitral regurgitation is what I'm thinking of. Um, I think of it as if the heart is dilating, then the valve leaflets are going to be pulled apart, and so blood can kind of flow backwards through those widened valves. And so mitral regurg is another sound that you might hear in someone who has a dilated cardiomyopathy going on. Now, since we're on the topic of heart sounds, I'd like to contrast S3 to S4, 
When do you hear S4 heart sound? So diastolic heart failure, that's when we hear S4. Um, why do we hear S4? What is that sound from? It's from blood that's being forced into a non-compliant ventricle, right? And what makes a ventricle non-compliant in diastolic heart failure? So it could be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, right? The muscle itself is getting thicker and it's not as compliant. You might also see this in restrictive if it gets really if it gets truly stiffened. All right. And S4, unlike S3, is actually usually always going to be pathologic. Okay. And what does S4 sound like? So the mnemonic is Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee. Tennessee. Or if that doesn't help you, ba-da-bum, 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 ba-da-bum. And that S4 is going to be closer to the end of diastole. So it actually is closer to S1. And so that's why whenever people say the heart sounds out loud, they say it kind of before S1 because it's so close to S1. So it's like ba-da-bum, ba-da-bum, ba-da-bum. And remember, S3 was ba-dum-bum, ba-dum-bum. Heart sounds take a lot of practice. I didn't mean to go on a huge tangent with them, um, but I just want you guys to recognize the difference between S3 and S4 and when you hear them and why you hear them. So now that we're on diastolic heart failure, let's go into that topic and dissect it further. So what causes diastolic heart failure? It's divided generally into two groups, so hypertrophic and restrictive. Okay, which one's more common? Usually hypertrophic, because more common things lead to hypertrophic. So what are things that would cause the heart to hypertrophy? Systemic hypertension, right? Think about how many people have high blood pressure. If the heart constantly has to pump against high blood pressure, then the muscle is going to hypertrophy because it has to make up for that afterload, right? I also kind of imagine bodybuilders when I think of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In bodybuilders, all the muscles are kind of big, but they can have hypertension just because all that muscle is squeezing on their blood vessels, and so their heart has to hypertrophy as a result. Now, there's a special subtype of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What if a 15-year-old athlete, let's say he's playing football, and he suddenly just dies on the field? What might he have? I'm thinking of hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Remember, there's a difference between hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, HOCM or HOCM. So HOCM is usually inherited as a mutation in myosin binding proteins or myosin heavy chains. And so anytime you talk about a condition that's inherited, you have to know the inheritance pattern. How is hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy inherited? It's autosomal dominant, okay? And so that's why you'll often see familial patterns with this disease as well. So another way to ask about the same concept is a man in his 20s or 30s, he has an uncle who died suddenly at a young age, and he has this high-pitched crescendo, decrescendo murmur. It's mid-systolic, and it's best heard at the lower left sternal border. And the murmur actually decreases in intensity when he squats 
or with a passive leg raise. What does he have? Hokum, right? I told you there's another way that we can ask the same question. So the point here is the murmur. It's a crescendo, decrescendo, mid-systolic murmur at the lower left sternal border. Why does it decrease in intensity whenever he squats or when the physician does a passive leg raise? So this requires understanding what exactly hokum is. So it's called obstructive because the hypertrophy in this condition is actually asymmetric. It's considered septal hypertrophy because the interventricular septum is what grows more. And so as that septum gets thicker, it actually interferes with the outflow tract. So it kind of blocks the aortic valve and blood can't move out of the left ventricle as easily. So what does squatting and leg raising do? What do those maneuvers do for the heart? They actually increase blood flow to the heart. So they increase the preload. Now, most murmurs, if you think about their descriptions, they're going to get worse with increased blood flow, but this one actually gets better. And it's because more blood that's in the heart pushes that septum to the side, and then it's easier for the blood to get past the aortic valve. So the increased preload actually dilates the ventricle a little bit by pushing that interventricular septum to the side, and then more blood can get past the aortic valve. So we said that squatting and passive leg raise increase preload and they make the murmur better. So what maneuvers would make the murmur worse or louder? Well, the opposite, right? So anything that decreases blood flow to the heart, anything that decreases preload. So one of those things is the Valsalva maneuver. What does Valsalva maneuver do? It decreases the venous return because it increases the intrathoracic pressure, right? When you're trying to expire against a closed glottis. And then aside from the Valsalva maneuver, another thing is standing suddenly. So standing suddenly kind of causes blood to pool in the veins. It decreases preload. And then that septal hypertrophy would block the aortic valve more and the murmur of hokum would worsen. The physiology between these murmurs is a little bit complicated, and so I think it takes a few times of thinking through this process again and again to kind of get it ingrained in your mind. But with that, I think we've pretty much covered what I wanted to talk about for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What was the other cause of diastolic heart failure? So restrictive cardiomyopathy, also known as infiltrative. Um, for this one, think of anything that can infiltrate the heart and kind of restrict its movement. So fibrosis. Uh, fibrosis can happen after a surgery. It can happen after radiation. Also other things that can infiltrate. So there's this disease that's a little bit random, but if a bunch of eosinophils infiltrate the heart, what's that called? It's called Leffler endocarditis. The Leffler, the E sound is an E sound. So think eosinophilic infiltrate for Leffler. Um, this is from anything that causes a hyper eosinophilic state. So there's something called hyper eosinophilic syndrome. It can also happen in response to a drug or a parasitic infection. Anything that causes eosinophils to infiltrate the heart is Leffler endocarditis. Okay. And then some of the same conditions that can lead to dilated cardiomyopathy can also lead to restrictive. So amyloidosis, sarcoidosis, hemochromatosis. 
Okay. With these restrictive conditions, what EKG finding might you expect? So because of all that infiltrate, you can actually get a low voltage ECG, all right? And this is especially seen with amyloidosis. Do you remember what stain is used to identify amyloid? Random sidebar. That would be Congo red. And I just asked that because, I don't know, it always helps me to reinforce random things whenever I get the opportunity to. So Congo red is the stain for amyloidosis. Now, that pretty much wraps up the different causes of heart failure. We talked about systolic and diastolic both. So now we have to think about how the patient presents because this is the presentation that you have to identify on the exam. So how does heart failure present? It sort of depends which side it's affecting, right? And which side is going to be more commonly affected, left or right? Left is more common, uh, kind of because that's what's doing the bulk of the work. It's pumping out the blood to the entire body, right? So what's the most common cause then of right heart failure? That would actually be left heart failure. Now, what if right heart failure develops in somebody in the absence of left heart failure? There's a special name for that. That's called core pulmonale. Uh, it's defined as isolated right heart failure, and it's usually due to pulmonary hypertension. So how do we distinguish the sides? How do we figure out which side is affected in heart failure? Well, it helps me to think about the anatomy. So think about what is feeding into the right heart versus what is feeding into the left heart. So if a patient comes in and they're complaining of shortness of breath, it's worse at night, they can't sleep unless they have two pillows under their head, what do you think of? You should be thinking about left heart failure because the pulmonary veins that feed into the left heart are probably getting backed up, and so now this patient is having pulmonary symptoms. So what might you hear on exam in this patient? You might hear some rails, which are indicative of fluid in the lungs. Now, what if you did a bronchioalveolar lavage and you found these macrophages full of a brown pigmented substance? Let's say that substance would stain positive with Prussian blue. What are these called? So these are called hemosiderin-laden macrophages, or heart failure cells. And basically what happens is, in left heart failure, you have this backup of blood in the lungs, and that increases the pressure in the pulmonary capillaries, right? So the red blood cells are going to leak out, and these macrophages, also called dust cells in your alveoli, are going to engulf these red blood cells, and so that hemoglobin inside of them um, is carrying iron. And so that's why you get these hemosiderin-laden macrophages. Now, in this same patient, what would you see on a chest x-ray? You might see cardiomegaly, um, which would be indicative of heart failure. You might also see some interstitial edema. There's a special name for the little lines that kind of show fluid falling into inside of the interlobular septa. Do you remember the name of those lines? Curly B lines. There's also curly A and curly C lines, and I'm not sure how important it is to be able to differentiate between them, but if you knew that, really good. So let's say now a patient is presenting with marked peripheral edema, two-plus pitting edema up until their knees. They have jugular venous distension. They have palpable hepatomegaly. What might this patient have? 
So this patient that I'm describing has right heart failure. Again, think of what drains into the heart. The systemic venous drainage comes into the right heart, right? So that's why this patient has blood that's accumulating in their legs, in their liver, in their jugular venous system. I always thought that it's easy enough to understand the physical findings in heart failure, but a lot of times it's really easy to confuse them for other conditions that can also cause similar symptoms. For example, in nephrotic syndrome and um, hepatic syndromes, you can get hypoalbuminemia, which also causes peripheral edema. And so sometimes it can be difficult in question stems to distinguish what the, what the underlying cause of a patient's pathology is. So one thing that can help distinguish between a liver etiology and a cardiac etiology is a physical exam finding. Do you know what that is? I'm thinking of um, this maneuver called the hepatojugular reflux. So this is something that you can do on physical exam. If In a patient with heart failure, if you press on the right upper quadrant, uh, that can cause an increased JVD. And so it's useful for diagnosing right ventricular failure, and it's useful to differentiate right ventricular failure from some cause that's intrinsic to the liver. So let's say a patient comes in now with classic symptoms of heart failure. They have worsening edema, they have hepatomegaly, they have dyspnea, orthopnea, and you're pretty sure that this is an exacerbation of CHF. How do you confirm that? What test might you order? So I'm thinking of measuring the ANP and BNP. So these are hormones that are secreted from the atria and ventricles in response to increased myocardial stretch. They stand for atrial and actually brain natriuretic peptide. Um, but these hormones can cause vasodilation, natriuresis. They inhibit the renin-angiotensin system. They can also inhibit sympathetic nervous system activation. And so these hormones, usually you just measure a BNP, and these have really high sensitivity, so they're really great for ruling out heart failure if it's negative. Say we got a BNP and it's just through the roof. How are we going to manage somebody with an acute CHF exacerbation? So often in the hospital, the mainstay is just diuresis to take care of the fluid overload and making sure that we're maintaining oxygenation, okay? And then more chronically, uh, heart failure patients should be on kind of a collection of drugs, which we'll discuss. So which drugs have been shown to reduce mortality and heart failure? Let's start with A, ACEs and ARBs, right? ACEs and ARBs have been shown to prevent remodeling. Beta blockers have also been shown. There's three specific beta blockers that are approved for heart failure. They are bisoprolol, carvedilol, and metoprolol. I use the mnemonic beta blockers for cardiomyopathy to remember B, C, and M. Other drugs that reduce mortality, spironolactone and aplerinone. These are aldosterone antagonists. These are good for a later stage, so stage 3 or 4 CHF. Finally, the last drug that has been shown to reduce mortality is um, a combination of hydralazine and nitrates. This is effective for patients who have systolic heart failure. Does digoxin reduce mortality? 
No, it does not reduce mortality. How does digoxin work? So it inhibits uh, the sodium potassium ATPase in cardiac cells, and by inhibiting the NAK chant ATPase, it also inhibits the sodium calcium exchanger. So that actually retains calcium inside of the heart cells, and it increases contractility. So digoxin acts as an inotrope, but it also stimulates the vagus nerve, and so it results in a decreased heart rate. What are the side effects of digoxin? Very commonly, you get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. There's a classic vision change. They have yellow colored vision. And then the vagus nerve stimulation can actually lead to AV block. Does anybody know the classic EKG finding associated with digoxin toxicity? So digoxin toxicity leads to a down-sloping ST segment depression. It looks like kind of a reverse check sign. It's often likened to Salvador Dali's mustache, which if you don't know what that looks like, it's worth Googling. And then with digoxin, what about the whole potassium thing? Anyone understand that? So the potassium thing, let me tell you. Digoxin can lead to hyperkalemia, right? It blocks the sodium-potassium ATPase. So not as much potassium is getting pumped inside of the cell. Makes sense. It blocks that pump. It leads to hyperkalemia. But patients who have hypokalemia are predisposed to digoxin toxicity. Why? Because digoxin binds the sodium-potassium pump. So if there's less potassium around, then digoxin is more easily able to bind that pump, right? And so um, that's why digoxin can lead to hyperkalemia, but patients who have hypokalemia are more predisposed to digoxin toxicity. Another thing to keep in mind is that digoxin undergoes renal excretion, and so renal failure can predispose to toxicity as well. So that pretty much wraps up everything that I wanted to discuss about heart failure, we went over the causes, the presentation, the diagnostic steps, and the management of heart failure. Of course, there's a lot more details that are important more as you move into the clinical years, but I really try to focus on what examiners like to ask you at the step one level. I hope this was helpful. I hope it was as exciting as promised, um, but really, I hope you took something out of it. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under this episode. Our biggest hope is that no one needs to cry SOS after they listen to Spoonful of Sugar. Thanks for your time, guys. I'll talk to you next time.